0: Welcome to today's podcast episode another one where we will spend a lot of time in something well everything is everything is mental health as I often uh, begin my presentations, discussions, talks, who in here doesn't have a brain and uh, obviously n- nobody uh, nobody raises their hand. then I go, okay, who did something today without their brain? brain is the center of everything. The body is the machine. The brain is the main computer that runs the body. We can't do anything without our brains. Um, As you have heard, as we've probably talked about before, um, substance abuse issues go very close hand in hand, uh, sometimes the same hand when it comes to mental health issues, we know that it is a disease to have an addiction, to battle that addiction. Let's uh, let's talk to some new friends here from UT's Recovery Services about some of the options that they have to get some help and some of the signs that you might want to keep an eye out for when it comes to, I, I would say yourself, but I think you would know that. You're pretty self-aware. That's why you're here. But um, those you care about, loved ones, friends, family, or somebody that you work with and what the process might be like for them getting that help in the same way that um, my friend Dr. Andrea uh, and I often do like a mock intake for somebody that wants to seek out therapy and counseling. I know there are people who for privacy issues or another reason might not want to address their substance abuse issue because they're afraid of what the process might... They want to address it, but they're afraid of what the process might look like. Let's dive into all of that right now here with friends. Thanks to uh, my friend Gene Drees and everybody with UT and their Recovery Services program. Thanks for taking some time to, uh, to visit today, Dr. Singh and... Todd, last name please. Steck. Steck. Uh, these gentlemen are friends from UT Recovery Services. Guys, thanks for taking some time. Um, it's something that I think we all need right now. I think, uh, Dr. Singh, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, this was predictable, but now I do think that we are, especially as the CDC data came out a couple weeks ago, uh, teenage girls and our LGBTQ youth are in the throes of a mental health crisis. No? No.
1: Yeah, that, that's true. We, we are in a challenging times, and the CDC data is pretty scary, uh, especially it's talking about our future. So when you talk about the young people, you're talking about your future. So considering all the problems we face right now and with the future looking not so bleak based on uh, that uh, data, that's kind of scary situation.
0: What's your role with UT and recovery services there?
1: So UTMC Recovery Services uh, has an inpatient piece which uh, mainly focuses on the detox, which is the first step in recovery, a really important piece in recovery, the first step so patients can undergo the, the medical withdrawal in a safer environment. So then we have the recovery services outpatient piece, which has the intensive outpatient so that the idea is a continuity of the process. Uh, so we have both the inpatient piece and the outpatient piece.
0: What is the landscape now compared to before COVID? I know we had made some inroads against um, the opioid epidemic, and obviously that was that was predictable that that would fall backwards. Um, is it? Are we in a worse spot now than we were in say 2019 when it comes to uh, substance abuse?
1: Yeah, we are, unfortunately. So we were still in the midst of the opiate epidemic when we got hit with the COVID epidemic. So it was kind of double whammy. So the vital part of the treatment in addiction, as we all know, is the continuity of care because it's a long-term you know, long-term disease. You're always so, in recovery, correct? Exactly. Uh, so that was disrupted, unfortunately, because of the COVID and all the restrictions and lockdowns which came with it though adjustments were made to make it more digital and still have the uh, the virtual part there but still you know not all patients could adjust to you know to adjust to the new technology which sure. was needed so unfortunately the the continuity of care got disrupted and we kind of have to start again from scratch again uh, so, yeah, it did make things much worse. Uh, I'll come back to
0: you uh, with, some of the, with some inpatient questions in a moment. Todd, uh, your role you used to be overseeing the entire ER at UT? Um, so, yeah. So back in 2017 when we opened
2: our uh, inpatient recovery services program, our detox unit, I was involved in that initial uh, part of setting that up and getting it open. And I did that up until about 2021. And I moved over to uh, become the nursing director of the emergency department at UTMC. I'm excited to be back in the psychiatric world and back with our inpatient
0: services as of a couple months ago. I'm sure you have all kinds of stories from the er um wild ones weird things going through people's bodies falling from things getting hand stuck that would be obvious but in in relation to this conversation while you were at the er as we were you were still there as covid was going through walk me through the timeline of from 2017 to covid and maybe what you can look from the outside and see now what's what our er's are like well it's well You know,
2: ERs right now are all overcrowded. Um, It's our ER included. And, you know, obviously it's across the nation. ERs are uh, backed up. There's a lot of patients using the ERs. um, And we have um, a limited amount of resources in the inpatient settings for the hospital units. So that backs up the ER when you don't have patients, don't have the uh, beds to go to or the rooms to go to like they used to pre-COVID. Um, nursing is down um, compared to pre-COVID times, mm-hmm. so it does it does make it challenging in an ER setting for the ERs to function as an ER.
0: What what could you offer to to the general public? And I don't ask. I'm not asking. I'm not throwing a loaded question at you to to criticize people who are using the er obviously there's a reason that they are it could be a mental health reason they they could go um thinking something is drastically wrong with them it's it's not a heart attack it's just a little anxiety but what's your best advice to people when seeking uh, what they believe is uh like an emergent situation I think the main thing is is that people just need to be uh, aware of what their
2: options are for their treatments. Obviously, not everybody has a PCP or you can't get in to see your PCP in a yeah. timely manner. Um, that then refers to, you know, uh, urgent care clinics. There's a lot of them out there these days, and some of them are very good. And so those are options. And, um, so I think the main thing is is starting out with, you know, calling your PCP if you have one, getting that appointment, if you can't get in timely manner, looking at what is my ailment, can I go to an urgent care clinic? If the urgent care clinic's not the appropriate level of care, they're going to refer you to the emergency department, right? And I think that's the best way to start is educating the public that you know, start with urgent care clinics and then go to the ERs if necessary. All, I'm go ahead, I'm sorry, no. and, and as, if you know, if you are if you can't breathe, if you you know if you're bleeding out if some ha- if a bone's hanging out go to an er <laughs> yeah. right
0: so yeah. yeah that's a good starting point and it's obviously we're all very selfish uh it's hard to think like this in in an acute situation like that But if you go to the ER and it's not something like that, but you are still deeply concerned, you might be keeping someone from getting one of those spots that actually needs it. And and it could be a life-threatening situation. And again, I know it's hard to think like that in the moment, but if we can plant these seeds, we can make everybody's life a little bit better, a little bit safer, I guess.
2: Yeah. And I think the main thing is, is knowing if you go to the ER, you're going to be triaged by a nurse. Yeah. And... It it's called triage for a reason, right? And so just explain knowing, that if you would. Uh, so when you go into an ER and your the first person you normally see is an, a triage nurse. They're triaging you based off of your illness. What's going on with you? How urgently do you need to get to uh, see the doctor? You, you're somebody who has abdominal pain, who's vomiting. You know that that's very serious, and you're in a lot of pain. But that triage level, you may have to wait a little while. And so I think that's the understanding that people have to have is the fact that it may take you a little while to get in the back and that you're, you are important but everybody's important. And we have to set that uh, uh, triage level. And there's a scale that they use to do that. And we take you back in order of importance of the disease that you're presenting with and to get you to the back.
0: I have been, I'm sure there are thousands of these stories. I've been in this waiting room for three hours. Sir, you have ripped your fingernail off and this person is, is is their blood pressure is like 500 over 300. <laughs> so, um, and the other thing, just from a lay person's perspective, as something who has been fortunate enough to, have insurance, although expensive at times, premiums and whatnot. Go to Urgent Care. It's a hell of a lot cheaper than than the emergency room copay you might get. Absolutely. Dr. Singh, back over to you. Um, when I go out and talk to people, uh, a lot of people are, are hesitant to seek out mental health services. And I'm talking about just medication, therapy, counseling. Not even just the stigma of going, they're they're afraid, kind of like when many of us had a fear of a dent, the dentist when we were younger. Um, I know it can be a little bit different when they're seeking detox services, but I think it's important to walk through the process of what someone can encounter when they come to see you for help. Um, information makes them maybe more likely to come visit.
1: Yeah, you know, for many people, it's a privacy issue too. It's not just the stigma, it's a privacy issue too, and which is you know pretty reasonable uh, to have. Uh, so th- the way we do is there is an intake process, so they, they call uh, the number and uh, they get all the information and they guide them through the level of care they need, whether they need the inpatient or they can go directly to the outpatient. And all the information provided is kept confidential, uh, so that's how we do the intake process uh, and decide which way patient needs to go.
0: I'm digging dig in a little bit further, if I could. What are some of the questions that someone is asked when they come for intake?
1: They're more focused on the medical issue, which could be expected to come when they do come for the services. Uh, yeah, there is some personal information taken but most of the the questions are related to what would be expected
0: and i'm guessing uh you can help the gamut of substance abuse whether it's alcohol um opiates uh whatever it may be what are some of the other things so that people can be aware maybe not necessarily for themselves i would hope that they Mm -hmm. are but for as we as we ask in the mental health community which you're both a part of, hey, watch out for someone else. And as a friend of ours used to say a long time ago, it's better to lose a friendship than a friend. So what are some signs that we could look for um, with people we care about when we might want to direct them to help? So
1: th- that's, a, that's a very good question. So that's the key question. So... With something, uh, addiction and mental health, they do tend to become very chronic in nature, That long-acting, uh, and it, it's, it's a very slow grind. Recovery then becomes a very slow grind. So the two key things is continuity of care and prevention. So continuity of care, once you're already there, unfortunately you are there, you're dealing with addiction. The word addiction is only used when somebody tries to quit and not like when somebody's using when somebody tries to quit and they cannot quit that's what addiction is when you are and
0: you are the scientist when you are when you are physio- physiologically unable to quit where you exactly. want, where you want to but your brain, yeah, brain does valuable.
1: not and you don't reach that point in a day in a month or a couple of months uh, even for opiate it can take up to one and a half year to two years before the brain reaches that point and for alcohol too it can take years uh, so there is a long window but during that window these patients are only known to themselves to their family members or the close ones so that's what you are saying is so vital if you see something and say something because that's what prevention can be Because once the brain reaches that point, they will come to the providers, but it's a slow grind and it's Mm -hmm. a very long journey.
0: There was something colloquial that we all heard, I think. I don't know when it became popularized, but functioning alcoholic. Um, Probably not the best phrase, maybe too much of a crutch. What are signs to look for where someone might be headed towards, whether it's addiction or abuse?
1: Yeah, so both can carry the same kind of complications, uh, especially the physical part too. Like liver damage can ha- occur the same way with your binge episodes. Like you're not drinking every day, but when you drink, when you really get drunk, you get intoxicated. So the bad things with like cirrhosis, hypertension, issues with your kidneys, all can happen even with the binge, with the abuse part. So, yeah, there is something called functional alcoholic. So, there are some exceptions. They are very rare exceptions who can live through their life being functional alcoholic. But there are only very, very, very few of them. But those few of them can model many, many, like, hundreds and thousands who are going to end up with very serious complications.
0: Um, I... I'm familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous a little bit in the 12-step program, I think, as a lot of people are, because it's out there in pop culture. How does someone recover or get, how does someone go through the, what's the recovery process of when you are an alcoholic or you're abusing alcohol or in its addiction? What are the steps away towards a healthier life?
1: Yeah, so first thing is it depends. Everybody's different. Everybody is different, and uh, the substance use affects everybody in a different way too. And their support systems are different. Their physical health is different. Their psychological health is different. So it depends on the assessment. Uh, though healthy living anyway does help. You know, healthy social life, uh, physical exercise, uh, healthy diet... You know, like our ancestors used to say, sleep on time and eat on time. I like it. These two basic things play such a huge role because whenever we fight our sleep or whenever we are hungry and decide to wait before we're going to eat something, we release a lot of stress hormones, which affects our self-regulation.
0: Routine is good for so many things. Um, Todd, I'll come back over to you. Uh, From the ER, you bounced into recovery services? Yep. what's your What's your role with that? So uh, currently, I'm the assistant nursing director over our
2: inpatient units at the University of Toledo, um, which is three different units. But recovery
0: services is one of those service lines. Tell me more about your role and what uh, what is entailed with it, and who you oversee and how you help people. So the The main function that
2: for me is is I, i'm I'm responsible for uh, you know staff support, getting hiring staff, getting staff trained, how to you know work on the units that we provide. In recovery services, um I was part of setting up the entire program and getting that program up and running and uh, continuing to support that program and teaching the staff, you know how, First of all, about recovery services, about, you know, the addiction process like Dr. Singh has spoke about. You know, uh, addiction is not curable. It's treatable, right? Mm-hmm. It's every day. It's a day-by-day process. And the one thing that I think we do real well at UTMC and, and our inpatient rec- uh, detox unit is, is we when we open, the point was let's get people access to service for the substance that they're uh misusing that they need to withdraw off of whether that be as you spoke opioids alcohol benzos whatever that substance what are benzos uh benzodiazepines bait your adavans valium xanax got it so those you know all of those substances to come off of them you know can be very dangerous Mm -hmm. You you, you know there's a lot of complications when you go through medical withdrawal so my nurses were trained in first of all how do you how do you treat a patient who's in that withdrawal from those different substances because they're all a little different. Mm-hmm. The nice thing about our unit is that we provide a safe space for them to go through this withdrawal process with nurses who understand what that withdrawal process will look like. And they are able to provide that medical support, but also the, the counseling and all of the therapeutic part for substance use disorder. When you're in a medical hospital and you're spread out amongst different units, whether you're in an orthopedic unit, you know, a neuro, neuro unit nurses are trained to take care of you medically but that substance use disorder piece that therapeutic part isn't always there and we specialize in that so we're able to support the person and dr singh has overseen the program since the day of inception and you know he does a wonderful job treating these patients uh, getting them you know the the help they need and understanding the addiction process what's that help like that isn't medical that you just spoke about um, you know, the therapeutic uh, part of that help is understanding the disease process and providing them with support that they need. We um, actually have an occupational therapist on staff that sees the patients and does groups with them and actually talks about, okay, so for the, let's just use a scenario. You've been using this substance for the last two years straight. It was an occupation for you. It, it, it occupied your time. It was something that you did. What are we going to replace that with? You have to have a healthy alternative. You guys just spoke about that, you know. And can't go one bad vice to another. Exactly. So, what are we going to fill that time with? That's healthy for you. Whether that's uh, you know an actual occupation, whether it's taking care of your children, whether it's getting a dog, you know, what is it
0: that you're going to do? What. Can you go beyond that? Uh, I mean, not to say that those are just uh, superficial things to throw out, but what are some of the things that people have picked up, um, especially if they don't have families? Because I know a lot of people who deal with addiction are alone, and, and these things are tied together. What are some of the things that you have seen that people have found that have helped them beat back their addiction? uh, uh-
2: A positive support system, right? And that can come in. That is what is so important is once you're through the withdrawal process, you have to get connected to the next stage of recovery. You have to be in some kind of an outpatient program. You have to have a positive support, a positive role model, whether that's a sponsor or whether it's in a, a group setting. You have to have that support from somebody that's continuing to to support you monitor you and get you to the next step of care that's that's the clinical way i was
0: asking more like a job going to the gym taking up a, a hobby um right. can do you have any more examples i know you mentioned dog but like any more examples that you have seen patients find success in which has helped pull them away from the addiction well, in, in so
2: healthy living, right mm-hmm. it's it's all about that healthy living. I, I can't say like Dr. Singh said earlier, everybody's really different. Mm-hmm. For some people, exercise is very important. I know there's uh, some I don't want to call out any names, but there's uh, other outpatient groups out there that their sole focus was you know, uh, let's just call it running right and and you know and that's <laughs> very healthy, you know what I'm saying. Um, that's very healthy, right? If, if that works for you. Exactly. But some
0: people, they can't run. We, I, I can't run. You know? so. I don't want to run. <laughs> we uh, I was at Perrysburg a couple of weeks ago for a, a development day, and we did this a year ago. And a year ago when we did it, it was, if your mental health is not well and nobody's is better than it was um, two years ago when COVID began, um, Let's here's some resources. A year later, it's like, okay, you know about the resources. Uh, maybe you've tapped into them, but- Uh, You've also probably read many articles, watched a lot of TikTok videos, and and they say, yoga, meditate, gym, blah, blah, blah. Maybe those things aren't for you, or maybe you're not doing them right. And the upshot of what we were talking about is, if it's not working, stop doing it. Find what you, because if you don't, what do they say? It's three weeks to get into a habit. Um, i like to go a step further and say it's three weeks committed to it because you are just grinded on that 15th day. It's not going to last forever. Right, right. I'm going to go back for one second. You obviously started the program in 2017. You're training people coming into the program now. It has to be almost like a total 180 or we have to have two dozen, three dozen more IQ points of knowledge and experience from where we were just six years ago to now...
2: I think that, yes, and I think also, you know, COVID did put a wrench in a lot of things because, as Dr. Singh mentioned, it, it really changed the way business was happening and the way that support groups and, you know, uh, the, the, the support systems were operating and things, people had to kind of, you know, curve and make adjustments. I think the main part for everybody is, is we, we, know, we know how to help people, and people know what they need mm-hmm. and they got to be committed like you said it's got to be total commitment and we just don't know and the hardest part is people understanding that somebody can be committed and then they might fall mm-hmm. you know they may relapse they may and, and that's okay
0: success is not always linear
2: right it, it may not happen on the, the third time or the fourth time but it may happen on the fifth or the 10th you don't know and you got to keep giving it your your all giving it everything you
0: can because you don't know when it's going to be the time that's the right time you there's edison quotes there's other things that says you just, just one more time the next time might be the time you break through uh, i'm sorry if i was uh, too verbose with that question i'll try to ask it this way is there anything you're training people with now who come onto the program to work for you that is drastically different or far improved from when the program first started
2: i don't think that anything's changed that much that drastically mm-hmm. i think um we i know that Medication assisted treatment has been around since we started, but I know that there are always new technologies and new meds coming out. So I think that, you know, just staying up on what options are available. Um, I know that we do use,
0: you know, uh, Suboxone and we do use Vivitrol. Can you talk about those? I know some people, I, I have friends who uh, are in recovery and we're very much against them, but again, I guess I, that is very personal. So can you talk about that? I'll swing that to Dr. Dr. Singh, Singh since he's the medical doctor. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so what we have... uh, Yeah, you know, as Todd was saying, things are pretty much obviously the same when you're dealing with the same issue. But what I have personally learned is the esteem, confidence that plays such a huge role because we can offer what we can offer, but it's still a lot of hard work which the patient has to do. And they need to have the confidence, you know. Like we use the word cultivate. uh, So even the good... uh, Habits or good lifestyle, you have to cultivate first, and it will take some time before you're gonna have any benefits of it.
0: Can you talk about the Suboxone and the other medication, which they are opioids themselves, right? That's why I think some people who are trying to beat this are against it.
1: Yeah, so historically speaking, uh, the treatment uh, for addiction had little success uh, for a really long time. Even the most uh, committed one who were compliant and showing up for the treatments, the results were not great. So that's where the medication-assisted treatment came into play and FDA did approve it. So medications are approved only with counseling because the results were good only when they were used along with the counseling focus on the coping uh, skills too. So for opiate, uh, methadone uh, is one of the medication-assisted treatment. It's a full opiate, uh, but methadone can only be prescribed in federally regulated uh, clinics. We do have many in the Toledo area. Buprenorphine, Suboxone, that's another medication-assisted treatment. So they both are agonist approach. The word agonist is used when you're using a substance which is similar to the original substance of use but is less likely to be misused or abused. So the idea is uh, to focus uh, on the complications of the substance use, uh, because with addiction, what the literature suggests uh, and the evidence suggests is the complications, uh, like IV drug users having hepatitis, HIV, people giving up their jobs, uh, relationships, and end up losing everything, that's what is hurting even more than the actual substance. With
0: those medications, um, are are they successful? At what point in someone's treatment do you go that route? Because it's probably not immediate yeah, so with everyone. The,
1: yeah. So the data is pretty uh, pretty convincing. So, for example, with methadone, with continuity of care, the patients who stay compliant, almost seventy percent of people can stay in recovery. With the Suboxone, it's around 60%. Uh, so with Vivitrol, it is still relatively new. We have less data, but it, it does show good benefits too. And not everyone needs
0: to use them, correct? Recovery is different for everyone, I would I would, it, I would, imagine. It should
1: be discussed and offered to everybody. But yeah, yeah, that, that's true. It's not like everybody needs to use it. And it's not the only way you can get into a sustained recovery either.
0: Um, How can people, what's the best way to access the services, whether it's website,
1: TikTok account, phone number? Mm -hmm. There there is a phone number. Yeah, you can uh, call uh, any time.
0: Gene, is there a website I can also direct people
1: to? UTMC,
0: i go just Google up UT Toledo. UTMC, UT Toledo it's Recovery up. Services. Uh, uh, the fun part now, Dr. Singh, other than making people's lives better, or trying to anyway, um, turn their lives around, what's your favorite thing about your job?
1: Well, when you are able to help somebody else, that's the most gratifying experience. That's how our human brain is wired too. And actually, that is the principle which works for people who are trying to get into recovery too. And many of them, they heal themselves by healing others. What's your favorite restaurant? the favorite restaurant I cannot say because I like to go to all the restaurants
0: <laughs> <laughs> so diplomatic uh, were you you're, were not born in Toledo correct yeah
1: I, I was raised in India I came to uh, United States in 98 and I've been in Toledo since 2002 what's your favorite thing about Toledo you can't say metro parks Toledo Toledo Damn. is a favorite thing
0: you you need to be a politician, <laughs> Dr. Singh uh, Todd same question is your favorite thing about your job I would say when
2: I get the feedback from family members on success stories, and um, you know, a lot of times in uh, administration in a hospital setting, you get a lot of the uh, the negatives, a mm-hmm. lot of the complaints, or sure. the little things. But when you get that those uh, those phone calls from the the patient or the family members uh, that thank you for what you've did for their family or how you've changed somebody's life, um, that that's probably the best part.
0: I had uh, met a UT ortho orthopedic surgeon years ago um, as I was going through some things. And uh, long story short, he's a friend of my friend, Marcy, um, Dr. Patrick Siparski. He left a bunch of years ago, but uh, he came up with a conversation. I texted him and he literally saved me, saved my life by getting me on the on the right medication. And I, I don't mean that figuratively or in a hyperbolic way. He saved my life because without it, I might not be sitting here. Well, are you willing to answer your favorite restaurant? I I would
2: 100% answer it. I just don't have a favorite one. Really? I really don't. Um, I, I actually just enjoy uh, the process of going out and being social at a okay. restaurant.
0: And the food is just secondary to me. You must have been really miserable during COVID.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty
0: bad. Um, You can't say metro park. You can't say zoo. You can't say art museum. What's your favorite thing to do around the area? Uh, I'm a golfer. I love to golf. So uh, any golf
2: course in the area, I, I definitely enjoy the golf courses. But my favorite thing about Toledo as a whole is what they've done with the downtown area. Yeah. Because, you know, how bad downtown was, you
0: know. Kind of. I got here in 2013. Oh, you're you're way after. Yeah. Prior to that. I did. I did. I I lived here a a time before, but for a very short period of time, 2005, 2006, right after the ballpark had come. Um, But I'm aware, because all the places I used to hang out then, like the Bijou and -hmm. other places, gone and...
2: Yeah, it's they it's, revitalized downtown. It's very nice. I, I'm very, very happy about that as a long time Toledo resident. Absolutely. Were you born and raised I, here? I was born and raised here. Uh, moved away for a few years and then came back. What brought you back? Um, honestly, Hurricane Katrina. I moved ah. to the New Orleans area, and then when Hurricane Katrina hit, uh, we ended up relocating back home
0: here. Oh my! What high school did you go to? Uh, Central Catholic. Excellent. Um, gentlemen, thank you so much for offering a ton of information for people. Who are trying to help themselves or for people who are trying to help loved ones. Thank you. Thank you so much.